I often say to young people, they say, oh, look, I, I didn't grow up on a farm. And I, I always say to them now, that could be the biggest advantage you've got because you don't have any preconceived ideas. That was David Marsh, and you're listening to The Regenerative Journey. G'day, I'm your host, Charlie Arnott, and in this podcast series, I'll be uncovering the world of regenerative agriculture, its people, practices and principles, and empowering you to apply their learnings and experience to your business and life. I'm an eighth-generational Australian farmer who transitioned my family farm from industrial methods to holistic regenerative practices. Join me as I dive deep into the regenerative journeys of other farmers, chefs, health practitioners and anyone else who's up for a yarn and find out why and how they transition to a more regenerative way of life. Welcome to The Regenerative Journey with Charlie Arnott. G'day, welcome back to the show. Well, here's part two of my uh, wonderful interview with David Marsh. If you missed part one, just go back to your podcast platform and find it. Um, you could idea to listen to part one first because there's a pretty good flow here. David, again, um, regales us with his history and his learnings, his epiphanies, his turning points, and uh, I can't tell you how much I enjoyed um, the whole interview, but here's, uh, here's the rest of the interview, part two. Oh, I'm getting a bit of a thrill watching all these little wrens jumping around while oh. I'm talking. Oh, they're beautiful, aren't they? Yeah. And yeah. just on that, I mean, I guess a good, good example or a simple example of that, David, is is weeds or plants that you know we we generally didn't used to want to be um, in a particular spot. And if we stand back and consider what they're doing, there that is a sign of nature trying to heal itself. That that species, that that weed, that plant has jumped in there to do a job, and it's. There's a wound that needs healing, and that could be a nutrient deficiency, or it could be a, a scar, or a, a hard pan. It's sort of a, to me, it's a simple example of, of what you're just talking about. I, I, I think it's a, well, yeah. I, I think it's, I mean, it's convenient in a way to say, well, weeds are good because you know they're a part of the ecological succession process that leads to a more healthy community. Um, because when you stop trying to control everything. You do have some untidy-looking paddocks. We have certainly had some untidy-looking paddocks, and we're in a very visible place. We've got a very big road running right through the middle of us, and um, and the last three years, um, you, you see weeds when the process of succession gets take back, taken back through circumstantial management to an earlier state. And when you start seeing lots of tap-rooted weeds, and there's lots of them around at the moment, uh, it's an indication that the last three years have been three weak springs. And so uh, the effect of these weak springs has been that um, we, we try to have 100% ground cover all the time. It's a really worthy thing to do. We, we don't always achieve it, um, but we have had very good ground cover in the last three years when there's been a lot of bear paddocks in every district. But um, but still, uh, the ground layer where you have this protective layer of last season's um, plants that have died off when their life has ended, uh, it's been eaten up by summer storms, a lot of organic activity, and that protection is not quite as good as it has been. So. Ecologically, the last three years have led to us moving into a state we're trying to get away from, which is 
we want to get in a state of more diversity, um, but we've we've been forced in a way, even though we've been it's very difficult managing in the last three years and particularly this last twelve months. It's been very difficult for everyone who's managing, regardless of whether they're holistic managers or regenerative farmers or um, conservation-minded conventional farmers. It's been extremely difficult. Um, but one thing that I found very heartening, uh, and I, I hate uh, trying to, uh, it's, it's very hard to talk about something that's going well when something is going badly all around you. And I'm not trying to paint myself as a great hero at all, but we have tried very hard by getting our animals matched to the landscape to retain high levels of cover. And I think we have achieved that this year. But when it started raining, um, you know, there were bear farms everywhere. Uh, we had a, it was about a 12 mil, quite a sharp little storm. And bear paddocks around the place, there was just water pouring off everywhere, knocking fences over. And I took some pictures on our place and there wasn't any movement of, of water at all. So we captured the whole lot. Uh, so then when the next um, bit of rain came a month later, when everything looked like it was about to die, um, we were we were still still in business because we had all that extra. Uh, it wasn't extra, but it was rain that had fallen like a gift and we were able to capture it on our farm. And that's an interesting thing, isn't it? It's something I certainly pondered in um, when it did finally rain <clears throat> and thinking, uh, again, I guess we were in a similar situation where we were able to retain the rain where it fell, and that was a, you know, we'd been uh, praying for rain, as it were, or, you know, hoping for rain, looking forward to rain all that time. And we were, I guess, we were in a position to uh, accept the rain and then, and then use it, you know. Mm. Um, and I, and I, you know, it was, it, it is a tragedy, I think, when, and, you know, every farmer in, in, in a, you know, when it, in these dry periods, they need as much rain as the next bloke. Um, yeah. And when it does, and when it just scoots off and it takes some soil and it doesn't stay there and it's not going to help grow anything, that's that's heartbreaking, you know, for the effort. It is. But, um, you know, it's it's incredibly forgiving, lad. I mean, um, you know, we're pretty happy with the way our place is looking. It was looking good before a lot of country was looking good um, because we had good cover and we had one mob of stock moving all the time, so lots of paddocks. We've got 104 paddocks. Lots of paddocks had more than 200 days between grazings. Um, but, uh, you know, the other day I was driving around um, between Burra and Yass. I got into a, um, some country I hadn't seen before. Knew the names of a couple of properties and uh, and I knew that it had been incredibly bare through some of this this area. And it looked absolutely spectacular. <laughs> I couldn't get over how good it looked. <laughs> and uh, it was, you know, there was a lot of, and there's a lot of this going on now with the value of lambs and, and meat. Um, there's been a, a lot of fodder cropping going on. And some of these crops that were sown in a timely fashion a bit earlier, they were absolutely stupendous. Mm. And um, so uh, I think um, somebody made, we've got a little grazing group that I'm part of, we had a Zoom meeting the other day, like everyone else, and um, uh, one of the guys he'd he'd done a bit of um, he'd uh, put some stock in a sacrifice paddock and fed them, and um, and he was over the moon at how that country had returned with the rain and and 
part of the reason for that is, I mean, I did that years ago. I, I had a couple of sacrifice paddocks and they're well named, I can assure you, because they do get very bare. But there's so many nutrients in there, you know. You've got, you, you've got a large number of animals on a sm smallish area and you're pouring a lot of high nutrient stuff into them. So they're excreting it all out and when it eventually rains, it's just like a boom, you know. Uh, David, but, sorry, go on. No, you continue, Charlie. I was just going to say, with I mean, I guess we've been highlighting some of the the good things about you know changing practice and holistic mm. management type approach to land management and so on. Um, some of those benefits are reasonably uh, well um, accounted for and, and, and obvious, and some are not so. Um, it, it's a, I mean, to me, it's a pretty compelling argument. What what are some of the I guess the hurdles that you've seen, heard, felt um, uh, for people, for farmers to, in in light of court evidence or, or observations, mm. um, for people to to transition or consider it. You know, what are some of the things that are holding that hold people back? Oh, gee, it's this is the this is the sixty four thousand dollar question, isn't it? That's why um, I, that's why I'm asking you, Dave. I know. <laughs> I'd love to be able to tell you, but um, <laughs> we'll move on no, to the next question. No, no, no. I want to talk about it because I was a I was a very conservative human being. I, I like you know the notion of um, you know buying stock or running adjustment or putting in electric fences. I was just so against all that stuff. I just thought that was I don't know why I thought it was so bad, but I just thought it was the wrong thing to be doing. But then I started to. I went to a little. I uh, was a was a uh, what would you call it? A little demonstration day, I suppose, up near Carcor. Bloke called Sam Cook. Um, he um, he'd been. He was one of the early graduates of grazing for profit, as it was then called. Well, that'd have been called a kit day. It was called a kit uh, day. No, I wasn't Keep that, in touch no, I hadn't thought of that, Charlie. Oh, no, before no. then, even. Yeah, before then. Jeez. Uh, They'd had Stan Parsons out here, who right. was Alan Savory's partner in the holistic management stuff. Uh, but they had a little bit of a parting of the ways and grazing for profit and holistic management became two separate entities, though basically the same. Uh, some slight differences, but pretty much the same story. And uh, one guy who was there, who was actually running it, I think, was a young bloke called Terry McCosker. And um, he'd like to hear you say that. that he young, would, some he young would. bloke. Yeah. Young, young bloke, bloke, Terry McCosker. Yeah. And um, there were quite a few people there. I'm just trying to think what, I don't know what year it was. I can't remember. But. Um, well, it's been in, it's, I think it's been in, it's, it's been last, this year is the 30th year of uh, um, RCS or Grazing for okay. I think I'm right in saying that. Right. So, well, he'd. What's that, uh, 1990? Yeah, I'm not well, sure what what Terry had been doing, but but he was. I, I think he was working for Grazing for Profit, just starting, mm. and he was running this thing. And um, had he did he work for Hassel and Associates? I don't know. Oh, uh, there were Hassel and Associates people people there. Mm -hmm. That was Graham Pitt and Co. Um, but anyway, there were quite a number of um, we were builders, innovative. Um, What's the word? Uh, uh, leading farmers. Leading farmers. Leading farmers. That's what we were called. Still are, David. And uh, anyway, uh, but one of the things that came out of it was 
um, we went for a bit of a drive and we were up on this big bluff looking down onto a, a sort of a, a flattish area down below near a creek and Sam went down on his bike to a gate and there were, there were a lot of livestock in this paddock and they were, they were all just standing there. We could see them. Uh, and then they became aware of his vehicle and the whole paddock just slowly moved towards where the gate was. And I found that quite captivating. <laughs> Um, and I think I might have just had Alan Savory's first book at the time, and I got mm. I got very excited about this possible way of raising differently, and um, and it was it was more about uh, obviously the animals are an important part of trying to make a dollar out of animal based agriculture, but the basis of it is what's going on in the landscape, and. Uh, I did fiddle around with a, you know, I got some electric tape and put a big mob of weathers together and was moving them through a few paddocks. Um, and, um, yeah, that was a sort of the precursor to me eventually after 10 years. I don't, I don't know why I took so long, but it took me 10 years <laughs> to actually do the course. I think the, the 90s were quite good cropping years. They were quite good rainfall years, I should say. But of the eight years prior to 1999, there were five um, events that happened that meant that the crops didn't reach their potential. And they were all things that were completely out of our control. And um, so that became, once I did this gross profit analysis thing and it showed that the cropping was not the wonderful thing I thought it was. Plus, it didn't match up with a whole lot of things we wanted for the environment, like uh, ground cover and diversity and uh, lower energy inputs. Um, it became very, that was that made it very easy to make the decision to get away from it. Now, I meant to be talking about things that uh, barriers. Uh, look, I think we're all basically lazy. Uh, we, we're quite happy to pay someone to do our thinking for us. I certainly was. I was in a little agronomy group with other leading farmers and um, we paid some very good agronomists, good good conventional agronomists from Cootamundra to advise us on how to spend our money and grow good crops and they were pretty successful at that. But there were these other things that prevented the crops being as good as they should have been. You know, there was a year when we had a you know, there were five or six tonne crops sitting there looking at us and we got this devastating frost on the 23rd of October and turned them into one tonne crops. Um, we had a couple of wet harvests, uh, a disease event. I can't think what they, they were, but there were five things that absolutely made it not good. And so, um, uh, yeah, that made it easy to do what I already wanted to do, but I, I couldn't. I think a lot of people get worried that uh, there's a few things that worry them. A lot of people are worried about what other people think of them and what they're doing. I did get a phone call from one of my neighbours when I put when I advertised my machinery for sale. He rang me up to ask me if I was okay. <laughs> so um, you know, if you do something different, it's a bit of sweet phone call. Isn't if it? you do, yeah, he didn't buy any. <laughs> uh, but if you do something different to your peers, uh, you know. It can be isolating. I don't. It, it doesn't bother me, uh, and I didn't. 
I had the, the good fortune, or, or partly good but partly bad. I didn't grow up on a farm, so I didn't have a father to pass on his wisdom about farming to me. Now, that can be... I often say to young people, they say, oh, look, I, I didn't grow up on a farm. And I, I always say to them now, that could be the biggest advantage you've got yeah. because you don't have any preconceived ideas. Um, however, that's not to make light of, you know, the conservatism that's keep, kept families in farms for five generations. So, um, But for those who have to convince their brothers or sisters or parents and others uh, that what they're about to embark upon is a good idea, that is a, that's, a, that's not an insurmountable problem, but it's, it's a barrier I didn't have to uh, pass. However, um, the, uh, I, I have always had a very open mind, so I'm, I'm very able to uh, explore other avenues and try and figure out if I can do it. I think the biggest concern I had was that I, I, I didn't want to go broke trying to do something I thought was good. Um, so, and I think that's, I think that's a big thing for a lot of people. I think they're, it, it's a lack of confidence. Um, you know, I, I would have no hesitation to leap into what I've been doing for the last 20 years. Now, knowing what I know, I'm very confident that I, I could make it work. So what would you say, David, to an individual, a group, you know, I guess that were, um, oh, my wife and the mic there, um, a, a group of people that were, uh, I don't know, what, 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 what sort of things could, could you say to an individual uh, to, to, to give them confidence or to sort of, um, I don't know, any, any, any pieces of sage advice that you would give? Because I trust that some of the people listening to this at various times, you know, they're listening because they, they're curious about, you know, the journey they're on, the journey that others have been on. Yep. Um, look, it's incredibly hard. It's such a personal thing, really. Mm. Uh, it's a social question more than anything else. It's got very little to do with information, I believe. I think the, the main thing is to... Uh, no, I suppose the... What I did was I, I, I did a lot of thinking and reading and getting myself informed. That's probably very important. Uh, you know, I, I've seen people do courses uh, that should be fantastic and they are fantastic. There's no, you couldn't do one of those courses without it changing you somehow. But I've seen people do that and do nothing else and, you know, not keep learning. I mean, keep being, keep on um, being a self-directed learner. I, I I mean, a lot of the questions I wanted resolved, there weren't answers from the institutions that should be advising us on this sort of stuff. I had to go and find them myself. And I did that by being, I probably absented myself from my obligations around the household at times by <laughs> having my head in a book too much. And I apologise for that. For any of my family who might be listening to this, which is probably unlikely, but I'll make sure I'll make sure they get a link. Yeah. But they do, the they do tell me from time to time that I that they wish I would tell them what I'm doing. <laughs> <laughs> but you know how that goes. Uh, you get wound up, and they get sick of it then. But no, um, I think uh, yeah, be be a self-directed learner. Uh, you know, from time to time, not when I was managing the way I am now, but 
I got into risk management. So I got into, um, you know, covering myself for a forward price with wheat contracts. I got into, um, I did do a little bit of wool futures stuff, which I look back on with absolute horror now because, it, it, you know, I was holding quite a number of contracts, which would have been sufficient to put me out of business if the market had suddenly turned against me. But it was a, at a point when the market was very stable and I had a very good bloke who was taking, uh, getting advice, not direct advice, but he was putting out a newsletter which had some very good stuff in it. Um, so, um, but I, I was more with the wool when we were changing over from conventional management to what we're doing now. Um, you know, the wool market was actually quite bad and this, I used to get this wool letter called um, Callum Downs, a bloke called Malcolm Bartholomew from South Australia. He was a financial analyst, a market analyst, I suppose. He wasn't, he wasn't connected to a broking firm, which was his big advantage. So he wasn't tied to anyone else's view but his own. And he used to put out a thing with, he'd have the spot price, the long-term average and the various averages for various microns and you'd work out where you were in the price cycle for all those particular um, uh, qualities of wool. And uh, he would at times say, well, the market's historically high. It might be, might be worthwhile thinking about um, covering a percentage of your, of your clip at that price. And we did do that a few times. And it was, it was like winning the lottery a bit because the market moved in the right direction. We had ourselves covered for a price several dollars above the spot price and our wool actually came in a bit finer than the contract, so that gave us a bonus on top of that. So, you know, that we did a bit of that. That was, that was a bit helpful um, because uh, we quite quickly, after we did the holistic management stuff, move into a nine-year drought from 2002 to 2010. That was, that was the litmus test as to um, can you prove and this is, this is what you do when you do one of these courses. It's like when you do anything differently. You're actually trying to prove to yourself that what you think is good can be good. And so I, I implemented what I'd learned, and most of that was about assessing how much grass we had and adjusting the numbers once I had an answer as, as to how much grass we had. And that, that gave us cash flow. Uh, we didn't spend any money feeding uh, we were able to get back into stock. Um, we, we sold early, so we got good prices. Um, we bought because we had grass. Um, we bought before the market got expensive. It was all working for us. And that's probably the highlight of, of this sort of management is you're, you're working with nature. You're not fighting it, you know, and, and you're not spending money fighting it. Mm. Um, it it's... Um, it's not something we sit around the table and pat ourselves on the back and say, isn't this wonderful? But we have this, you know, we've just been through three very difficult years and we haven't gone backwards. You know, that's an unusual thing to be able to say as a farmer in, in Eastern Australia, I would think at the moment. Hmm. And, um, and I, I don't think I'm a particularly clever human being, but I am quite observant. And people who do this sort of management, they get very observant and, and you it just happens to you, and the big thing that you observe is the landscape, and and the diversity that's 
You know, I, I get so excited if I see a new species of, of plant on this place. And um, so, yeah, but look, it, it is a confidence thing. I think uh, there's a lot of there's a lot of people who are on the edge of thinking that they'd love to do something different, but they're frightened to have a go, partly because they're worried about what people think of them, partly because of what they think they might embark upon that mightn't work. Um, I would say to people, if that's the way you're feeling, go and find someone who you admire or who you think is a reasonable human being and go and ask them if you can have a look at their place. I've, I've shown hundreds of people around this place. I've had lots of conversations with people and I've encouraged people to... I had an email from a bloke in South Australia uh, last night. Um, Colin Sykes went down and and myself went down and ran a workshop down in Murray Bridge. It was extraordinary country. It was Sandhill country, really. As you're flying in towards Adelaide, you fly over this um, the Murray catch the Murray River and the catchment beside it, and it's all dunes. You can see it from the air. There's and uh, it was incredibly dry when we were down there. And this chap, lovely fellow, um, we we gave them a bit of a talk in the. Uh, natural resources office and then we went out onto this guy's farm. It wasn't a very big farm but he'd sold half his sheep, he'd spent a lot of money feeding the rest of them and um, and I said, now, how are you managing those animals you've still got here, Peter? And he said, we're moving them every day. And I said, well, how many paddocks have you got? And he said, 10. I said, well, well that's probably the opposite of of what you should be doing in a way because it means that you're getting back to the paddock where you started only 10 days after you left it and that's absolutely um, going to be that's about as bad as you as you can get it i'm not making it hard. i said do you know how much grass you've got no so we went out this group we went out onto the paddock i said right we'll work out how much grass you need how, what area you need to feed a sheep for a day. And we did that. And um, I said, you've actually got enough grass for it, for you to run these stock that you've got for 10 days in every paddock, which means you've got 100 days of grass here. He nearly cried. He was so overcome that he didn't he didn't have to suddenly get rid of the rest of his stock and capitalise this debt that he'd run up feeding them. So, um, but it, he's been in touch with me a number of times. I've had very hard offering advice from so far away, but, um, you know, I think it was just such a lovely thing to be able to, to help him. Just on that, David, I have to say, because um, we, we have to, we don't, well, I guess we have to wrap it up just because. You think so? Well, we don't have to. <laughs> it's the longest interview I've done so far. And really? For good, and for good reason. Because you love a yarn and it's fascinating stuff. And just on the mentoring thing, I just think it's worthy to note that back in January, which David alluded to, or this season, last three years and certainly last 12 months has been a very tough um, time for um, farmers at, well, right across Australia, really, not just in the east, in the west as well. And and certainly for us at Borua here, we had a very challenging January Um uh, for a number of reasons, and primarily through um, the season, the the um, the dry, um, and some personnel 
um, sort of changes. And and I have to say, David was a was certainly very helpful to me um, in mentoring some decision making and some confidence building and some and came out for a drive, which was was really a big turning point for me at that time because it actually made me it clarified some some thinking I'd had and some decisions I was making. So thank you for that. Um, and, and I guess I use that as an example of, as David had mentioned, you know, the 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 value, the importance um, of reaching out to people that you admire that, that could be, you know, call them a mentor, a mate, whatever, um, share your experiences, ask some questions. And, you know, to me, that's some of the best advice you'll ever get or the best conversations you'll ever have. Um, so, you know, I guess if there's some takeaways from this um, that I can um, suggest people take away, um, you know, uh, whatever sort of state of farming you're in, or even if you're, you're listening and not a farmer and you're, God knows, doing something else, you know, this, this, just reaching out to people um, at these sort of times is absolutely imperative. Uh, look, I reckon that's a, a great comment, Charlie, but uh, one of the things that's happened with this um, bit of isolation that we've been going through is uh, we've, we've started to um, value the... Uh, no, start to appreciate the value of Zoom. Um, uh, I've had a number of uh, Zoom meetings, uh, quite a few of them with farmers, not individual farmers so much as um, I'm involved in a thing called Growing the Grazing Revolution, which is a Midlockland land care project. Scott Hickman's a bloke who runs it, he and Peter Davis, uh, and he has a group of mentors, one of which I am. I'm on the board of it. Um, it's It's... Uh, it's a great little group, and Scott is a wonderful um, educator and mentor and connector with people. He's just he's brilliant. But um, we had a, a meeting the other day with the uh, the group of mentors, and I think there was I think there was ten of us actually, um, and uh, it was it was extremely good. And um, and as a result of that, we started a little WhatsApp uh, group where and. Yesterday was I've never really posted anything on social media, unlike Charlie, uh, <laughs> and I, I posted more things on that little site yesterday than I've done ever before. <laughs> and then I put a comment up this afternoon. I said, "We're all sprinters, I think. Nobody's made a comment today." <laughs> <laughs> but no, look, I think there's there are lots of groups around that you can become part of, and um, one of the things we try to do with our group is to. Um, you know, if someone's showing a bit of interest to ask them along to a meeting and, you know, we have meetings in paddocks uh, and groups, there are four or five of these groups that are running and they're, they're almost autonomous now. They're doing their own thing. So you can get involved in something like that. It's non-threatening. Nobody's going to make you feel uncomfortable. And, um, yeah, it's uh, they can, they can, I'm not saying degenerate into, but uh, there is a, tendency for them to become farm management meetings. Nothing wrong with that, but the main purpose of what we're doing with this is is um, why are we doing what we're doing and how do we make the decisions that lead us towards the future we want? That's the guts of it, I think. And that's sort of a um, those those groups and the, the whole um, concept is something that's highly repeatable, isn't it? I mean, there's some, yeah. Scott, Scott oh, you know, he's got some funding and, yeah. and, and you know, it's a really solid, it's been going for yeah. some years now, but the, yeah. the concept is, is transferable to, to yeah. so many different things. It is. David, um, 
before oh, a bit more land care talk. So, mm-hmm. and, I, and I guess just from harping. You're harping, getting, you probably haven't got mosquitoes getting through your thick No, they can't. No, I, I, I pretty much stabbed them, them in my beard. Yeah, and I've seen a few around yeah, here I now. I notice you're getting a bit agitated. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Um, the where was I going? Oh yeah, harping back to the um, my earlier comments in the interview, um, David. Um, I am probably here because I'm even here at Allendale doing. Hang on, oh, doing this stuff because of you. Because in 1997, right. I just had a couple of years working at a pub in Sydney, been to right. uni for a few years, yada yada. You rang up and said, "Oh, I heard you back in." Back in town, would you like to come to a meeting, a land care meeting? Right. And um, and I was the unsuspecting victim of an ambush. Oh, gee, I, I wouldn't have put it in those terms. <laughs> Maybe I should interview you about the turning point in your life. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you listen to the first episode of this series, um, David, you're you, it. You, I, yeah, I, I gave everyone a bit of a rundown on that. Okay. Um, good. But my, what was my point there? Yes, yeah, so because of the ambush and then walking out of that meeting as the secretary of, of, a, of an organisation that we, my, well, I guess my father, a family had been um, there from the beginning and um, but I'd been away for some years so I, was, I, I had lost touch with it for a couple of years but back in there and, and, and fairly and squarely and then from that point on to this day involved um, very much. So I have to thank you for that, David, for getting, oh, for throwing me in the deep end because well, that's pretty much the only way. It was one of the few occasions when I've recognised real talent before it was <laughs> fully expressed. Well, I'm glad I didn't recognise the ambush and, and, and escape it. it was no, actually, you were too uh, polite, Charlie. Abby, too, too, too polite. Too polite. Too polite. Definitely yeah. too polite. Well, I'll change that. Yeah. Um, and, David, uh, we might just finish on, um, I guess, land care, we we both received awards there um, in uh, oh God, I think 2018. That, 2018, yes. Come on, so I couldn't have forgotten that. No, 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 because I'm thinking two years ago. What what year was that one? 2018. Yeah. Um, uh, mine was the uh, Bob Hawke Landcare Award, um, and yours, David, mm-hmm. was the. You were the you were the people people's choice. No, no I wasn't people's <laughs> choice. I was the Australian Straight. government individual land carer for Australia. I think wasn't it something like that. It was, and I say I use the words people's choice because it was a um, it was a you were nominated, right. and, the, and then from what I understand, and I stand, I'm happy to be corrected on this. It was a um, nomination and a uh, I don't know if you call it a vote, but it was certainly a. It was almost a people's choice type award. Right. You obviously impressed the land carers of Australia to well, do that. Look, I, which, I, which is very, which I think your 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 award has much more sort of dare I say prowess because it's sort of uh, of the of the people. I wouldn't. I, I was wouldn't just lucky that. that. No, look, <laughs> I, I I think um, if probably I'd been around for a fair while, <laughs> and uh, I mean I've often said to people, you know. Because you know, people get very excited about their capacity to make some change in the world. You know, that's a really worthy thing to feel good about. And uh, this friend of mine, Danny Gundagai, said to me, um, "She's sort of reasonably recent in the regenerative agriculture game, and she's very keen." And um, she said, "Oh, she said, I, I, you know, I just feel like there's a." A lot of movement going on. There's, a, you know, we're really making progress. I said, Rebecca, I've been feeling that for about twenty years now. <laughs> but I said, 
I think it, I think you're right. There is quite a lot of movement, but um, it's a long game. Uh, yep. But it, I mean, the stakes are big, aren't they? Oh, well, the stakes are massively huge. Uh, if we, you know, I mean, it's a depressing thing in a way for for human beings to be responsible for the climate, but uh, our activities have had a big effect on it. Uh, mm. We could we could shift that by shifting what we do, but. You know, I think I think everyone instinctively knows, and particularly at the moment, I think everyone instinctively knows that we have to do something different. But uh, it, I don't think a big lot of shift will happen until we realise that we've got to have a bit of sacrifice to achieve the mm. difference. So, uh, you know, I think the various, you know, over my farming lifetime, the various um, uh, solutions to the dilemmas of agriculture, um, the unspoken message is that once we apply this remedy, whatever it is, to the current dilemmas, we can then go on living the way we live. But it's actually the way we're living that's the problem. So we've got to, we've got to A, want to do something. You need some thinking, you need some activity, um, but you might need to we're probably all going to take quite a while to pay for the the financial situation that we might be in at the end of the virus. Um, so that could require some sacrifice of doing something a little different. There could be a lot of people doing things differently. I think um, that's a good place to finish there, mm. David. I would um, suggest I would I'll put it out there that next time we sit here we get some mosquito repellent. But uh, oh, it is, it's off. It's been off, mate. Off. <laughs> um, I, offer, I did offer. <laughs> you did, and I just forgot. Um, this is the first series, David, and right. I think that. Uh, okay. God, I've, I think I've I've done a lot. I should probably just halve this and, and push the second half into the yeah, second series. Yeah, no, no, no. Yeah. I reckon we'll come back and, and come back to Allendale, where a lot of this, lot of things have uh, taken place, and in terms of your regenerative journey, and as I've mm. alluded to, uh, my regenerative journey. And um, very excited to have sat here for for this amount of time, David. We've we've broken all records. <laughs> and, uh, Not sure whether that's good <laughs> for good reason. And this um, could be a challenge for your, you know, your bloke who edits editing. No, yeah. he's up for the, he's up for the challenge. No, this will be actually be a good experiment. I think that because because it's our first series. Do you, get a, do you get any sense of you know when the podcast becomes something that people can get into? Yep. Do you get any sense of how many people persist to the end of a podcast? That's a good question, David. I because think you, that could be the measure of whether it's any good. If anyone stays <laughs> for an hour and thirty-seven at, minutes, <laughs> they drop out at minute eight. <laughs> you know, you you got to yeah. rechange, yeah. Well, change your format. Could be a bit of you know. We've heard all this before. No, well, look, I think um, I guess I mean I choose my interviewees for their. Um, because I generally know most of them in some way, and mm. because of the, the variation of, of how many in the group, Charlie? Um, well, there's nine interviews in this first one. Okay, right. Your your number, your number eight. Right, uh, I have to say, and then mm. and then. Um, no, uh, I, actually, I, was, uh, actually, I was a bit curious as to who you would be inter interviewing, but I thought it would be. Wrong to ask. No, I can, I can tell like, you. No, I, I don't. You no, don't I'm going to tell you because I'm going to remind myself. Right. So Joel Salatin. Oh, okay. Uh, oh, you got him down. At, I got him. You ambushed him down at uh, I Albury. Did, I did. Yeah, <laughs> last year. I yeah. said, you're my first victim. Um, 
Damon Gamo of 24. Oh, yes. Uh, film. Matt, Matt yes. Um, I hope I'm going to forget the order here. Sarah Schmurder. Oh, yes. yes. <laughs> um, oh, dear. Uh, Corey Hancock, the environmental oh, cowboy. Oh, yeah. Fantastic. Yep. Um, then we have Jim Gerrish. Um, oh, yes. You met Jim up yes. there at, at Meyer Grazing. At Wilmot, yeah. Uh, Wilmot. And then we have Lorraine Gordon. Oh, yes. Um, yep, SCU up there. Yeah. Lorraine. And then there's this fellow called D.S. Marsh, yes. you might know. Right. Um, who's sitting beside me. Um, mm-hmm. And then Marie Lowe's, who's next. So I'll give her a quick. Pl- Where is Marie? Oh, I'm not sure. Marie Lowe's. So she is Dirt not- Girl. Dirt oh. Girl, the ABC kids show. Oh, right. So she's, okay. she's been her. her, her um, uh, her, her, what's the word? Um, alter persona, persona. I think that's the right, yeah. right way to put it. Is, has been Dirt Girl, who's Dirt Girl. Uh, ten years, won awards all over the world. Um, fantastic stuff. She's, um, 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 she sort of finished up that part of her right. career. Um, very environmentally conscientious, doing amazing things still with kids. Um, we're working on a bit of a doco together. Right. Um, uh, at the moment, um, taking a bit of a bit of a break just. Through the this um, uh, the COVID nineteen situation, yeah. um, and so for you listeners out there, that is she is the next uh, interviewee. We talked uh, spoke talk about her her life, her history, how she worked, how she sort of grew up on a farm, and then you know I guess essentially her regenerative journey, um, fascinating stuff. And she has still a very big career in front of her, doing some amazing things. So um, she's a younger woman by the sound of it. She she is. She's younger than us, right? Okay, younger than you, anyway. That makes her young. <laughs> I, what am I? I'm, I'm younger than I look, or I'm not sure if I'm older to look. You'd be forty six, wouldn't you, David? I have to cut this bit out. It's um, no. What am I? I'm 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 forty eight. Are you? For, no, hang on. I'm forty eight in at the end of. Oh, that's right. This the year, forty seven, isn't she? Yeah. Okay. Oh, we were same year. Okay. Yeah. Oh, well, she I think must... I'm right in saying that. I mm. have to always ask someone else what age I am. David, sure thank your wife you. Will know. She yeah she no no she forgets she <laughs> she won't mind me saying she forgets birthdays right. not mine though right. um, is this bit going to be in the <laughs> I hope we so. might I think we, we might leave, uh, I, morph into Roy and HG, our <laughs> usual persona that's again no I like to leave these bits in because it's um you know let's leave on a high mm. but we must <laughs> wrap it up we, we again we've broken getting, more yep. records since yeah um, David thank you that was fantastic pleasure Charlie and, I won't shake your hand no we, we've we'll, violated every other regulation of no, we can't, we can't even reach each other because we're 1.5 yeah, metres right. away. But, um, but we're only 24 hours from being let loose, aren't we? Mate, yeah, Sunday, maybe. Sunday. Oh, Is I thought there was going to be. I thought today was going to be Do your mother a favour and don't visit her on Mother's Day. That's, I know. That's the, yeah, yeah, I know. Well, we'll see on Mother's Actually, Day. Actually, Mary got a fantastic, um, uh, what was it called? Tom Foolery, I think it's called. It's a New Zealand bloke and his kid wants him to read him uh, – another story or a story he's had just before and he doesn't want to but he ends up reading it's absolutely riveting important what, um, so where do i find this uh, i don't know i'll send is mary it a book or a... no it's just a, a little video oh cool i'll i'll get mary to send it to you good one mm. we loved it well i'm gonna love it too yeah i think you will david thank you pleasure Charles. sign off yes and everyone look forward to marie Lowe's no, next just... week do we just fade away? What do we? I press that big off? red button. Turn on, tune in, and check out. <laughs> For more episode information, please head over to www.charliearnett.com.au.
This podcast is produced by Rhys Jones at Jaeger Media. And as the recipient of the Bob Hawke Landcare Award, Charlie would like to thank Landcare Australia for their support in the creation of this first series of The Regenerative Journey.